Hi, welcome to Careers in Automotive. I'm your host, Eddie Maunder. This podcast is brought to you by Real-Time Recruitment Solutions. They specialize in recruiting into the automotive, aerospace and defense sectors for both contract and permanent roles across the UK and Europe. For more information, check out their website, www.rtrs.co.uk. And now let's crack on with the podcast. Hi, welcome to Careers in Automotive with myself, Eddie Maunder. Today, I'm joined by Andrew Rostron, who is the former Head of Business Development at ProDrive Advanced Technology. Thanks for joining me today, Andrew. Oh, very welcome. Thank you for inviting me, Eddie. Really? So first of all, where I always like to start is how did you end up in the automotive industry? Was it, was it always the plan or, or did you kind of fall into it? Um, I think as a, as, a, as a young boy, I had two passions. Well, one was uh, aviation and the other one was automotive. So um, I think it was inevitable that I was going to end up in, uh, in one of those sectors, to be honest. And was uh, anybody in the family in any of those industries or, or was that just a passion you, you developed? No, no, I just used to be an avid re- reader of performance car as it was for those yeah. uh, listeners who can remember. Um, but um, no, uh, no specific links with um, with the automotive sector in my family. No. Oh, brilliant. So you, you went to uni- the University of Bath uh, to study manufacturing systems what was it that, that decided um, made you decide that you wanted to go to uni after college and things like that? And, and why did you choose that as a course? Well, a slight confession here. So uh, I actually applied at the University of Bath to do aeronautical engineering. Right. Uh, but then, dis- then discovered when I got there, actually, it was a bit, wasn't quite what I wanted to do. And um, quite fortunate, I think almost ahead of its time. Um, I mean, these days, you know, lots of courses are very modular, but um I discovered they were running a course which was a combined course between the School of Mechanical Engineering and the School of Management. Um, so it, it enabled me to, um, you know, to, to, to tailor the, the degree to, to subjects which I thought were really interesting and thought could help me in my future career. And, um, you know, they, at the time there was, um, there was a very an infamous book called uh, The Machine That Changed the World written by James Womack. And, um, one of my lecturers was actually one of the co-authors of that um, of that book, and it's all about uh, lean manufacturing, just in time, all the Japanese philosophy about uh, car manufacture. Um, so that was quite a pivotal moment, I think, for me because um, it gave me a real insight into into the industry. And um, you know, with his connections, I was able to visit uh, Nissan up in Sunderland, and also went to see um, a, a Morgan car company over in the Morgan Hills do some work with them so it was um pretty pivotal really i think um so it's more about um you know making myself future proof so i studied as well as engineering subjects because it was an engineering degree um you know aspects of japanese business and um um you know environmental management so it was, it was very much uh, um, you know a very interesting course um which that's how it all happened really it gave you a quite a broad skill set by the sounds of it as well Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I discovered, you know, I wasn't going to be a designer, you know, I wasn't going to be the next, uh, um, you know, CAD designer or, um, you know, Dynamics person. So it, it made sense to me. So it was a more sort of touchy-feely soft skills as well. Brilliant. And did, had, you, had you had any like part-time jobs through college or anything like that to, the, that fed into manufacturing or was it, was it pretty much a, a blank slate for, for you when you, uh, when you started the course? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, to be honest, it's a pretty full on course. I mean, you know, you're doing, you know, 30 hours plus a week of timetable work, plus you were doing uh, a night school where you were going down to the local tech college to, um, you know, to, to learn about welding and, you know, lazing and uh, using lathes and, and, you know, drilling and milling, that kind of stuff. So you really didn't have much t- time, really. So no, I didn't I didn't work at all during uh, during my university studies. Mm-hmm. only in the holidays oh, brilliant and um, so when you finish your degree uh, i'm writing saying that you went to cranfield university then to complete a master's in engineering and management of manufacturing systems yeah so um basically it was quite a tough time for graduate engineers uh so this is, we're talking the early 90s there and um the um the director of studies at, at bath a guy called tony milam um so she said to me, well, have you thought about um, going to Cranfield? It's a postgraduate university. 
um, because I, I lacked, um, you know, I didn't have an industrial placement, so it's very difficult. So uh, Cranfield had a lot of engagement with industry. So um, I was quite fortunate to get um, what at the time was called um, a CERC grant, but these days I guess it's um, an EPSRC. Um, um, so basically it was fully funded. So I, I went off to Cranfield for a year uh, to do my second degree and um, you know the benefits of it for me was because most of it was in industrial uh, placement so you were working as a consultant effectively so most of my co cohort were much older than me you know they'd been in industry for 10-15 years but we were basically working in teams and supporting various manufacturing businesses around the country so um, it what it did it enabled me to spend a lot of time working with companies like um, Avery Burkle, who makes the weighing scales, and also we worked with an ICL spin-off called uh, D2D in Stoke-on-Trent, and uh, it gave you access to actual, you know, real-life industry uh, problems. So it was a really tough year, actually, but it really quite rewarding. And um, you know, rightly or wrongly, some you know some employers quite like people with with a second degree or a master's you know so it definitely definitely helped and and it sounds like you you mentioned there that a lot of the people were you know had been working in the industry previously who were on this course and um how did you uh did, did you find that you could learn a lot from them because they actually had practical experience yeah absolutely i mean you grew up really quickly because you know from being surrounded by people your own age uh suddenly you're in this much more sort of professional setting uh, working with people perhaps who may be on a career break, you know, or they may have been uh, sponsored by their by their employer. So, um, yeah, and it was also an international uh, cohort as well. So, you know, you were dealing with, you know, I think there's only a couple of other Brits on the course. So it was it was great. It was all my first exposure to sort of working in in a sort of multicultural environment, to be honest, which which would be which is ironically where I spent most of my career. So. Um, yeah, really rewarding, hard work and, and not a traditional university experience, you know, so um, so Cranfield is um, it's quite unique, you know, it's, I think it's the only, it's the only postgraduate, it's on, on a former RAF base, so it's in sort of middle of, middle of nowhere, uh, got its own, uh, got its own runway, um, you know, quite well respected, a very strong school of management there, so it's definitely, um, it's definitely helped my career for sure, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say that. I mean, do you, do you think um, it's helped your career, the fact that you've got a master's degree? Or do you think that um, it's more helped your career, the, the fact that the experience of, of going on that course and working with it, like working alongside those sorts of people? Or do you think both of those have helped your career for, further down the line? I mean, the, the reason I went there was to basically compensate for my lack of industrial experience, you know, so because I didn't have that placement year. Uh, I was able then to approach uh, an employer or future employers and, and say, look, well, I've done these projects. And I could discuss them. So that was one benefit. Um, but I guess it's also, you know, it's, um, you know, being having access to some sort of renowned and, you know, world, world-class um, people who, um, you know, had spent most of their life in industry. So Cranfield is very much uh, industry-led university. So mm -hmm. some universities are very sort of theoretical and, uh, the teaching staff very, very rarely get out, whereas Cranfield was very much more sort of the practical end of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's just, um, I think I grew up quite, quite a lot in that year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It sounds like, a, it sounds like it was a great experience for you. And then, then coming, coming out of the university, uh, your first role was working at Wagon Automotive, uh, within production control. So you, you mentioned there that when you finished your, uh, your your first degree before going on to your master's, that it was quite difficult at the time to secure a role. So how did the position at Wagon Automotive come about and, and what did the industry look like at that time? Yeah, so, I mean, probably like most people, I, you know, applied for the various sort of advertised um, positions. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, actually, the way, the way I got my first position was just through uh, uh, a temporary position through an agency. And... Um, they were simply looking for somebody you know, to work on the night shift um, on MRP data entry. So, you know, it was, it was not ideal, but it was close to where, where I was living at the time. Um, you know, it was a late shift, but which clearly I didn't really want to do, but it gave me access to, to this company, which was an automotive tier one, 
that I wanted to work for. So I took a bit of a punt and um, went to work there uh, initially on a, you know, on a temporary contract and uh, thankfully got spotted by the, the operations director. Um, and then I had, um, you know, more than four happy years there in, in various roles. So I came on to the day shift, um, very much a, um, you know, a very fast moving pace. It was a um, company making pressed assemblies, uh, predominantly for the UK car industry. So Honda, Toyota, uh, Nissan, Rover. Um, and it really good because it gave me an immediate um, exposure to some of the you know the philosophies and concepts that I'd studied so it was all about um, you know one piece flow just in time uh, sort of Kaizen 5S um, even down to the the uniform we, we wore you know everybody managing director down all had the same Japanese style overalls you know and um, during my time there um, you know as well as um, helping do you know production planning I was involved in uh, working with Honda on a on a Kaizen project, so we had a team of Japanese engineers on site, and we were looking at uh, cost down, pro you know, how we could re-engineer the parts or the process. So really practical, um, you know, work, which is really exciting. Um, but it was a quite a, you know, the company was actually originally um, privately owned and then been acquired by Wagon Automotive, so it had a bursting order book. Um, so it's pretty chaotic, you know, there's quite mm. a bit of firefighting and, you know, I spent half my time running around trying to, um, trying to make various different parts, um, to keep my customers happy, you know, <laughs> yeah. so, but, and uh, how, how did you find the Japanese, like you, you mentioned, obviously it was a lot of, uh, like Japanese culture in the business and, you know, you, you're saying about the, the overalls and things like that. How, how did you find that Japanese culture? Was it, uh, well, I guess maybe it wouldn't have been a shock to you because, it was your first role within the industry but how did you how did you find that yeah no exactly I, I suppose I mean clearly you could you could sense that this was a traditional company trying to embrace these new philosophies you could mm -hmm. definitely sense that um, and they brought in some senior management from you know companies that had already gone through this transformation pro project but um, I think generally it was um, you know it, it, it was well received but um, you know there was quite a difference between you know particularly quality standards in these days you know it really was pretty shocking so uh, you know having a quite a proactive um client say like honda and toyota who were you know there to support you as well was pretty instrumental for these companies because they were you know it wasn't just a big stick they weren't just beating you up saying why have you delivered defective parts you know they'd actually come and help you and say well yeah. this is this is how you should redesign the tooling or the fixtures or this is how you should train your operators so so it was um pretty pretty enlightening um so um you know but um and uh, you know gave me a good experience of um of working with a raft of different people within organizations so yeah that was my first first experience in supply chains sort of operations yeah and what was the biggest challenge in the role for you then um oh goodness me it was just trying to trying to manage the customers expectations it's really difficult because um they had a major capacity issue so it's trying to balance um uh, a relationship in, a, in essence because you know different customers had different um different inventory uh, policies you know so you you had all the customers clearly who don't care about the other customers so they're yeah. just pushing pushing for their parts and uh, you had to make a judgment where well, thinking, well, I know how many they build per day. You know, I know how many vehicles they build. I know when the last shipment was. So therefore, actually, I know they say they want the parts tomorrow, but we've actually got three days. So whereas this Japanese customer doesn't have any stock because they operate on a just-in-time basis and they will run out in three hours time, you know. Mm -hmm. So it was having to manage real real-time um, data and say, well, how many, you know, and, uh, and then ensuring that... Um, you know, you don't spend all your time um, breaking down tools and, and setting up when actually when, you know, you should be actually producing a larger batch. So you, otherwise you get into this sort of vicious circle of, um, of, of non-productive time. So that was the biggest challenge was just sort of managing, you know, trying to communicate and manage the without causing irreparable damage to the to the car company. <laughs> yeah.
Yeah, and so you you spent four years there, then keeping within the uh, the, the Japanese uh, culture, you you moved over to Nissan as a business development and logistics manager. Uh, so, what were your responsibilities there, and and how did that differ from um, from your role at Wagon Automotive? Yeah, so this was my lucky break, really. So um, this position was advertised as uh, automotive logistics and business development. I had no previous business development experience, but I obviously knew about automotive logistics. And uh, I went to work for uh, Nissan Trading Europe, um, ironically, who were who were based in German Street in London, above, above the pink shop. And um, so Nissan Trading um, basically were acting as the conduit for a, uh, a sister company called Jacko, who's um, an automatic gearbox manufacturer. So basically, Jack, Jacko didn't have any presence at that time in, in the UK. So basically they used Nissan Trading literally as a trading company to basically to, to, to mitigate and reduce their, their, their risk, particularly from a, from a financial perspective. So um, basically, although I was employed by, by Nissan Trading Europe, probably 90% of my, of my time was actually working on behalf of Jacko. And it was primarily was to firstly establish um, a supply chain from Japan to the UK because uh, they had been successful in winning uh, contracts with um, with Rover and Land Rover at the time. So, but the, the gearboxes were made 6,000 miles away in Japan. So basically I had to set up uh, two logistics centers in the UK, one in Lutterworth and one in Widnes. And we were, you know, I was importing uh, you know, six containers a, a week from Japan by sea through Southampton. And then those containers were then uh, being offloaded in these bonded warehouse facilities. And then we were delivering just in time um, mm. into the car plants. Um, but also came with that role was this, you know, the, the, the commercial interface. So, you know, it gave me my first um, opportunity to, to get into sort of uh, product development as well and, and interfacing with the commercial people within the car companies. So, um, you know, the transition between um, Nissan Trading Europe and, and Jacko was pretty seamless, actually, because it's they're all part of the same Karitsu, so the sister companies. Um, and then once um, once things got underway, I mean, this is we're talking sort of late nineties here. Um, we actually set up a technical center in, in Leamington Spa. So whilst I was one of the first employees uh, in the UK, we then grew to about I think about forty people in the end, and it was a mixture of uh, of uh, application engineers, quality and warranty engineers, um, uh, advanced uh, development engineers, and people like myself. So, um, so it was, um, you know, very happy. So I think I was there nearly eight years. Um, so that was basically supporting a variety of different car companies. So at that time, um, surprisingly, most of the European built vehicles were fitted with Japanese gearboxes. So, um, so the, the, the contracts I was particularly involved in with, with were uh, Rover, Land Rover, Ford of Europe, uh, London Taxis, which of oh, yeah. course has now become uh, the London Electric Vehicle Company, and, and latterly uh, Renault. Um, so you have to remember that at that, that, that time, um, Nissan was, was not in a particularly strong position. It was very weak. Um, and Jacko is at its uh, daughter company, was basically told to go and find their own business. Don't rely on mothership. Go and find your own your hmm. customers. So that's why they ended up selling effectively Nissan technology to all these European car companies. Um, but then what happened was that um, Nissan and Renault formed an alliance. Um, so that meant suddenly uh, Jacko had a new parent company, um, which was great. So that enabled them to then access, um, you know, Renault, who at that time had a a really antiquated, um, you know, uh, two-pedal uh, transmission strategy. So, um, hence, in the latter latter years, I was spending quite a lot of time uh, actually supporting Renault in in, in Paris. Um, so it was a phenomenal period. You know, lots of uh, lots of travel, um, working on lots of very innovative uh, projects. Um, obviously, you had some pretty seismic changes in the industry you know you had um you know ford premier automotive group being broken up you know you had the, the whole uh, you know mg rover debacle the collapse 
um, you know, really quite a quite a um, you know, a, a torrid time, really. Um, so, but uh, extremely, extremely enjoyable experience. Um, so, um, yeah. Fantastic. It sounds like it was a really interesting time, especially with the, you know, the setting up the, uh, the base at Leamington Spa. And, and so I guess a, a question would be, you know, you mentioned that you had no experience in the business development side of things. In the interview, how was that overcame and, and what sort of training and development were, were you given in terms of the business development side of things? Goodness. I mean, to be honest, uh, I was given, you know, it was literally sink or swim. So, <laughs> So, you know, I had a lot of responsibility, you know, I was still fairly young and uh, in essence, you know, I was the voice of, of this customer 6,000 miles away. So, you know, but I, I knew quite a lot about the car industry, but, um, and also having that engineering background, you know, gave me credibility because a lot of the discussions I had, particularly on, you know, uh, launches and, you know, uh, pre-volume development work, you know, you're having to engage with various engineering people within these car companies. So definitely having that engineering background, you know, put me in good stead, gave me confidence. But I mean, luckily I'm, you know, I'm a fairly out, outward looking person and, and um, you know, fairly good communicator. So, you know, um, found it quite easy to, to talk to people and, and, you know, work out how, you know, uh, you know, how to get things done really and who, how to influence people and, um, and what, and how to bring support in when he needed it. So, um, so, you know, no formal training as such. It was very much, um, you know, um, forming your relationship with your clients and, um, and and getting on with it effectively. And were you like, did you have like specific targets and things like that on the business development side of things? Or was it, you know, because it's fairly new, you know, obviously Nissan had said to, to Jacko, go out and win your own business. How did it work like that to monitor what you what you're actually doing in terms of activity? Um, obviously, I've just, you know, I've just the for the for the for the major projects, and clearly, you know, I was obviously feeding them a lot of information. So, which you know, I, I felt in a very privileged position because, you know, I had a lot of access to to very senior people, both within the car companies and also within you know the tier one, because um, you know you were effectively the um, you know the, you're the conduit, and um, so that definitely. Had, helped a lot um for me uh particularly in you know future 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 times and the other point is that um you know the decision of a car company on their powertrain is pretty fundamental and it's very very early mm. on in the in the development program so it meant you and also because it's because it's such a significant commodity you know it's not like a you know it's not like a door handle or something you know so you had really early access and very senior access to various people in the company so it's it was a phenomenal experience um you know, sitting in and all these projects which were some of which didn't go ahead unfortunately some of them did and uh, you know by the time these 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 vehicles were in production you've been you'd, you'd known about them for five years yeah you know, you, so it was all old hat <laughs> Yeah, that must have been a really interesting time. And, you know, as you mentioned, you spent uh, a good period there across Jacko Nissan, about eight years in total, something like that. And from there, then you joined uh, Norma Group as um, head of supply chain. So it was, once again, a slight change of direction in terms of roles. Why did you decide to go down this route and, and, and how did that role come about for you? Yeah, so, you know, I'd already had, you know, I started my career in supply chain and then I had this lucky break into supply chain and business development. And then um, it became apparent uh, at Jacko that, um, in essence, I would need to relocate to to Paris full time and I wasn't able to do that. So, um, um, so then I needed to find a new job and it just so happened there was this, um, this company called Norma Group very close to where I live. Um, and they were looking for, um, you know, uh, someone to join their senior leadership team uh, as head of supply chain. So that was encompassing uh, customer service, uh, purchasing, warehousing, and logistics. So, so I decided to to, to join them, um, and um, it was a company which, um, you know, which was um, um, private equity backed. So it had a, and it was growing at an exponential rate it was uh, had was of swedish origin um um but um it was um, you know i joined in 2008 which is just as the um just as the recession hit um so it's a pretty horrendous period to you know so yeah, basically 
the lights went out for a lot of the car companies because their demand has disappeared. And if you're a tier one supplier, you, you just get the full effect. So it was pretty brutal. So I joined this company and then suddenly, you know, was tasked to, um, to consolidating the UK operations. You know, we had three sites in the UK, one in Newbury, one in Andover and one in, um, in Redditch. And I had to consolidate it into one company, you know, and, and, and then, you know, painfully had to make people some people redundant, um, but then you know, no sooner had we uh, rationalised and consolidated and taken a lot of cost out of the business in order to survive, then you know the market bounced back, uh, <laughs> and um, um, because their clients were predominantly um, Scandinavian German, they were the sort of first ones to bounce back. Mm-hmm. So they did an awful lot of work for for Volkswagen and Daimler. Um, so Norma Group made. Um, engineered joining technology solutions so these were um it was in a period when you know lots of engines were downsizing so the car makers were were reducing the the um you know the swept capacity of their engines but then what they were doing was then you know fitting turbochargers and then of course because of the emissions they were having to fit um you know, SCR and um, diesel particular filters. And so suddenly, uh, you know, you had an additional pipe work um, uh, on these engines, which all needed some kind of clamping uh, connecting device, which is exactly what Norma made. So it was, you know, it was um, a very exciting period for, uh, for them. So they, you know, they grew and, and got some really large contracts with, um, um, with some, you know, pretty prestigious companies. I mean, one of the one of the fundamental clients was Volkswagen, and you know, they were making you know, thirty thousand pieces a week. I mean, the massive numbers, mm. you know, really, really healthy numbers. Um, and it was a really interesting role. So, um, you know, it was a case where um, this company had grown from uh, significantly, and the the supplier base wasn't uh, match fit. If you know what I mean. So basically, whereas the supply was perfectly adequate at a, at a lower volume from, from mass production. They were just weren't suitable, so we had to we had to resource a lot of the, uh, um, the components and material to new suppliers. So that was quite interesting. So it gave me a chance to to go and meet uh, lots of new interesting suppliers, um, and I had a, quite a large team. You know, I had four departments to look after. So it's but it was. Um, very much in a sort of operational inward looking role really so um so that's ultimately why i left because um you know though it was very rewarding i actually missed the interaction with the clients you mm. know um so ultimately i decided to um uh, to, to leave and um uh, but um you know norman now is uh, i think it's over one billion uh, euro turnover so really successful company and um, you know, any vehicle probably has got Norma Group parts on it, and um, not many people would know there's there's manufacturing in the outskirts of Newbury. You know, these sort yeah. of people think people think of Vodafone and all these other. You know, they don't necessarily think. By me, there's a company there making parts which are going all over the world. It's quite incredible when you think about it. And so, was that your first role where you where you had like a team reporting into you then? Um, no, I did have um, some staff working to me at Jacko, but it was um, I had some um, you know, sales administration support, but um, it was a much larger role. So um, I think I had a team of about uh, well, I must be getting on to about thirty-five people working for me at North. So much bigger. Um, so you know, having to deal with sort of man management issues as well, as well as you know. Um, you know, trying to make improvements to the business, uh, also instigated a new uh, warehouse build. So, yeah, no, it's a busy, you know, it's a busy period. And and especially joining around the time of the recession, as you mentioned, it must, you, you know, you couldn't have really um, <laughs> picked a more difficult time in terms of managing a team than, than that period when obviously there would have been tough decisions that needed to be made. And it sounds like obviously, you know, you, you came out of it as a business stronger, which is uh, which is really positive, due to a bit of, with the emission side of things. So, was it was it difficult managing that and, and motivating staff, or, or how did you find it managing people through that period? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know having to manage uh, a company through um, a restructuring is really tough, and I think um, it makes you a better person for it. Because I'm I'm quite a compassionate person, but 
you know, seeing firsthand the impact on people, you know, when you're making somebody redundant is really, yeah. really tough. Um, and it's definitely character building, you know, and um, of course, you know, it's, it's awful for the people being made redundant, but um, actually for the people having to, to make these decisions also, it's, it's really hard. And I, I had many, many sleepless nights, you know, worrying about, worrying about this and, uh, um, you know, um, you know, I'm certainly not a hard-nosed individual, so I, I did worry a lot about my staff. I, I, mm. I you know, I made sure that um, even in better times, you know, you made sure you looked after your your staff because they were your your greatest asset. And um, people go through various, um, you know, pressure points in their through their life and career. So it's it's being able to have that sort of um, sort of holistic view, really. But um, yeah, um, you know, fundamentally though, so. You know the it was a sort of you know unprecedented event really so um but um it did enable companies to to streamline and become more efficient and then ultimately more profitable you know and then they were able to expand and grow so it's sort of you know although it was very tough for some you know the individuals uh, at the time um you know unfortunately it was just one of those things and then so you mentioned that um you know when you moved on from there you you were looking to get more into the client facing back into that uh the business development i guess side of things and you you went to ricardo as a chief engineer and sales project director so in terms of that role you, you'd mentioned that you know you you weren't like um didn't see yourself as a designer and things like that earlier on like how technical was that role um with the title chief engineer i normally associate that with being very technically engineering yeah content. So, yeah, basically, I was approached by um, um, someone I used to work with. I said, um, oh, you know, um, we're looking for somebody in the business development role to help, um, you know, particularly in the Japanese market. So that's why I went to work for, for Ricardo. So I worked for their driveline and transmission system. So basically, because, you know, I knew quite a lot about driveline transmission systems from my time at, uh, at Jackco. So, um, so, so, you, so obviously, you know, Ricardo is an engineering organization, so a very, very traditional engineering, you know, to, you know, you go in as a, as a graduate engineer, then you become a project engineer, then a senior engineer, then a principal, then the chief engineer. So um, I was, it was a bit of a shock to me when I turned up on my first day and they, they I'm, I'm a chief engineer, I think, by <laughs> me. So it was done for two reasons, I think. One, one was, as I meant, you know, was because of the fact that they needed people to understand, you know, your sort of seniority in the business. That was one reason. And the second reason, the most important reason, really, was, you know, for credibility with the clients. So, you know, particularly in sort of Asia-Pacific region. So, you know, I was going over to Japan and South Korea quite a lot, you know, facing off to some really pretty senior people within these car companies. Um, and you, would, you wouldn't get through the door if you had business development on your business card. Really? You know, to, so it was purely a, um, you know, um, it helped with kudos and, um, but of course it was uh, pretty, pretty daunting thinking, well, blimey, I'm not, you know, I'm not a gearbox designer, you know, mm. and then of course people think that you think that you are, but I think the difficulty is, is, um, you know, I've worked with some fantastic engineers over, over the years, but, um, you know, not many of them are, you know, there's only a few who are also really good at being able to put in front of a client. You know, yeah. that's the challenge, you know, so engineers can be absolutely fantastic at what they do, but they are, you know, they're introverts, you know, they're not particularly good communicators. So you, you need to have that soft skill and, and some of them do, don't get me wrong. So, you know, a lot of the, the, the chief engineers who are in this business development role clearly were, but um, you know, having their soft skills is sometimes equally or, or even more important than than the actual the technical, you know, the technical detail. So, um, but it was about bringing in the right people to support you at the right time. Um, you know, so it's all you know. You had a team of people, but um, you know, my role was predominantly to grow the business in Japan. So, um, Ricardo had a had a local office in in Yokohama. Um, but they, you know, they were mainly focused on, on effectively areas of the vehicle where they got best support from the UK, believe it or not. So, mm. for example, the engines team were quite committed to, you know, to the Japanese office. So, of course, they pushed the, the engine side of the business. So, and they were lacking, 
someone to help support the the driveline transmission system so i basically sort of stepped up and um you know gave them support uh you know went to visit lots of new clients and um and then was you know managed to be successful in winning um you know some new projects with some new clients so uh and the japanese are quite um you know very 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 challenging customers you know you absolutely fantastic projects um you know you're not sort of bidding for traditional work typically it's sort of problem solving or you know you're having to, to demonstrate your uh, competence and capability before they'd actually give you some work you know so a lot of it was very um you know very testing you know but um successfully worked with companies like mazda suzuki and and subaru um so um yeah really uh quite a you know quite a, a great period of my life um your role was from sort of hunting out the opportunity to then you know trying to build a bid and then then obviously ultimately negotiate it and then you know if, if you've been successful and won this piece of work then you were um ensuring that the project delivery team actually did what you what you promised the customer you know so you were although i didn't have any direct reports um you know some of the projects had up to sort of a dozen engineers working on them so you were and they had competing customers so you were always trying to do your best for your customers so you were trying to coerce them into doing making sure that they understood the subtleties particularly the sort of cultural subtleties and the importance of meeting time scales and deadlines that kind of thing um so it was very much a sort of you know finding the work but also making sure you kept close with the customer and you became the conduit so you know you can see sort of the parallels with my previous work with jacko you know it's very yeah, much very about much. you know very much about the sort of stakeholder engagement and that which i really enjoyed <clears throat> what, what sort of projects were you guys involved in i know that you mentioned that, that your remit it sounds like was to to bring business in from japanese companies so what sorts of projects and i know you mentioned a couple there but what sort of companies were you dealing with as well um yeah so i mean the projects could be quite varied they could be sort of competitive benchmarking so you know for example within transmissions um you know one of the most renowned uh, um, suppliers in the world is a company called zf um yeah. so you know they were they were doing a lot of uh, competitive benchmarking to see well you know why is the new eight speed gearbox so efficient and you know so they they would pay you to do some benchmarking really, uh, right. some back to back testing um we were also involved in a uh, on a um, an offshoring exercise so there was um a japanese client who decided to um start production in thailand um and they wanted um a third party uh, engineering house to to basically verify that the gearbox is being made in in Thailand were as good as the ones being made in Japan. So, you know, they basically, Ricardo was, um, you know, was responsible for, for carrying out independent testing for that, for, the, for those transmissions, so a, a whole bank of different tests. Um, there were also projects with um, um, sort of clean sheet design for a new, new sort of dual clutch transmission. Um, so, so they, you know, um, um, a new technology that the Japanese hadn't particularly adopted. So they thought, well, let's, you know, let's outsource it to somebody who has already done that. Um, so, um, you know, that was literally from clean sheet right through to, um, you know, taking it to production for them. Um, so predominantly, um, you know, as I mentioned, um, you know, Mazda Suzuki, um, uh, Toyota, uh, also I spent some time with, um, Hyundai uh, Kia in, in South Korea as well. Mm -hmm. um, so Korea, you know, if you see the the products that come out of uh, South Korea now are in, absolutely incredible from where they were 20 years ago. I mean, it's, it's pretty, pretty amazing there. Mm -hmm. You know, their relentless uh, pace for innovation and um, self-sufficiency as well. So, you know, they, um, and I think the UK can learn a lot because you know regrettably you know we allowed a lot of our manufacturing base to to leave the shores and um whereas um you know some of the uh, asia pacific companies countries recognize that no no you need to be in control of everything um so that you're not dependent on other people um so that you know that's uh uh you know that should be commended to to, to be honest so um 
yeah so that was a you know very busy time um so um japan is um is a very good market um for mm. you know for consultancy uh and then sometimes things work in your favor because of exchange rates and suddenly you know although you might appear expensive to a to a uk customer uh, suddenly you're considered quite quite reasonable for a japanese <laughs> customer so that, that, that helps as well sometimes Oh, brilliant. And, and what, what, so when you moved from Ricardo, you then, um, your most recent role was at ProDrive, um, in business development role again. So was, was that working with uh, the Asian market again, or, or what, what was your, what was your remit at ProDrive? Yeah, no, so it was slightly different. So, um, obviously at Ricardo, I was purely focused on driveline transmission systems. So mm -hmm. very, very still quite segmented. Whereas, um, I went to work for ProDrive and, and they have various different divisions. They, they obviously have the renowned sort of motorsport division that everyone you know, probably knows quite a lot about, mm -hmm. which is, you know, for example, you know, ma managing Aston Martin Racing and they recently competed in the first Dakar. Um, obviously, they've got history with all Colin McRae and Richard Burns, all that good stuff. But I, I worked in their advanced technology division, which is basically, you know, engineering consulting and sort of niche manufacturing. So again, it was it was working with in different sectors. So predominantly it was automotive, but also aerospace and defense. And, um, but it was more sort of a, at a sort of higher systems level. So almost like a vehicle level. So, you know, whereas um, at Ricardo, I was only really focused on, on, on sort of tr transmission systems and propulsion systems. Um, at ProDrive, it could be much, you know, it could be a much bigger brief or it could be just a different part of the, of the platform you know it could be an interior system or it could be a um you know an active aero system or it could or it could be a whole vehicle development so um it gave me access to different areas of the vehicle and also different markets so predominantly most of the clients were were uk so again i, I wasn't using you know i was using the same skill sets but then applying it to a different sector effectively and also different mm. markets so um that's for me was quite a challenge quite a nice challenge it's almost going back to where you know because my um my uh, engagement with the uk companies had taken a bit of a pause really so since you know after i left obviously jacko i was working heavily with people at jaguar land rover and and the like um, um and obviously then i had this big break because i was mainly focused on japan when i was at ricardo and then i was come came back and then it was again sometimes re-engaging with some people I already knew, which is lovely, you know, mm -hmm. but I hadn't worked with for 10 years. Yeah. But, um, but um, yeah, so it's predominantly working with, um, with companies with, you know, on disruptive technology. So you had sort of startup companies, you may have had a traditional OEM who just wanted to behave as, um, as a disruptive company, because that's part of the problem, really, you know. So some of these larger companies become so so cumbersome, you know, they, this, you know, they get become so, um, you know, hierarchical that sometimes it's very difficult to make any, any real progress. So, um, um, you know, you, you find that, um, some, some car companies are trying to reinvent themselves and other, and others, uh, you know, whereas others, you've got these new entrants and you've got these new startup companies, you know, nothing about the sector whatsoever, you know, the sort of the Dysons of this world and the, mm. um, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And, um, so, Obviously, it sounds like a really interesting time uh, in your career. And one thing that, that I'm quite interested in, you mentioned that, you know, obviously it was predominantly automotive that you were doing and motorsport, that sort of stuff. But you were also doing a little bit in aerospace and defense. How did you find that, um, did, like working into those dis different industries? Was it was it quite mm -hmm. a big challenge for you or, or was it very similar yeah. to automotive? Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, you naturally you're a bit... Uh apprehensive about a new yeah. sector because you think oh, i don't know any of the terminology i don't know any you know i don't i don't know much about the products and process and all that but but um the, the clients you work with that's the reason they approached you yeah. you know it's, it's the other way around it's like well actually we want somebody who hasn't got all this baggage you know who can actually think a bit more you know laterally and um you know use some of the automotive techniques and principles on our sector so um you know so yes it can be quite daunting so you know for example the defense sector i mean goodness me you know the um you know you need a bible just to look up all the acronyms and all the different <laughs> you know um and you know the the um 
you know, the, but the vehicle technology is is um, you know pretty basic on on most, for example, armoured vehicles, and um, hasn't developed at all really over the last forty years. Mm. So there's massive opportunities, um, but of course, the tricky thing is just trying to, you know, to try and convince the uh, those in authority to uh, to work with a smaller company rather than sort of the incumbent uh, primes. You know, so that's that's quite a challenge. So there are some fairly fu fundamental challenges still still to to resolve but they are trying to um you know improve engagement with um with smaller companies who are typically more innovative you know more disruptive so um but um yeah i think once you get over the sort of all the acronyms and the um you know you it, it's the same principles you know how you develop a product is the same it's just um you know, maybe they might have some more testing or certifications or there you know, may be some quirks about it. But fundamentally, um, the processes are the same. You know, the steps you go through from, a, you know, from an initial sort of proof of concept, you know, management demonstrator right through to a, you know, fully validated uh, approved product. It's the same. Um, it may take longer or shorter, depending on which sector you're in. But generally speaking, it's, it's the same. It's the same process. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. So um, you, you moved on from ProDrive after a restructuring uh, in November last year. So uh, what, what have you been doing since you've, uh, since you've moved on from there? Yeah, so time's sort of flown by, really. I haven't had, you know, obviously the Christmas in the middle. Yeah. But um, um, I've been doing some work for, for, for Innovate UK. So, you know, you may be aware that, I mean, successive UK governments have been you know, pretty good at, at, um, at pumping, you know, funds and grants through, Mm. various channels to try and encourage uh innovation and also to support this the, the the they talk about the valley of death you know one of the biggest problems that we have in the uk is um the companies come up with a great idea but then they can't industrialize it they can't you know they can't yeah. actually take it to market so <laughs> generally the technology ends up you know the idea and stuff it ends up going over somewhere else to be industrialized yeah yeah exactly so time. so there were various um initiatives so you know the advanced propulsion center so mm -hmm. you know innovate uk itself ati faraday battery challenge so all these organizations are helping you know collaborative partnerships you know they're trying to get companies to work together uh, for the benefit of the uk so you know i've been quite fortunate to work on some of these projects in my in my in my career but um uh, so i've been helping them in, in, a, in an assessor capacity so you know basically assessing uh, future projects for them so you know so that's kept me a little bit busy mm -hmm. um and also um you know my sister-in-law is um is a gp in a in a fairly rural um uh surgery in in west berkshire where i live and um um these some of these surgeries have actually um decided to join up uh, to, uh because their facilities basically are too small to deal with vaccination programs for covid so uh, I've been helping out at um, actually at Newbury Racecourse, so this is um, quite a large facility where they're able to get a good throughput. So um, I've just been helping out. Um, there's a good team of volunteers there supporting obviously the NHS, you know, workers there who are actually administering the the, the vaccinations. But uh, it you know it does require quite a, a sizable team of people just to help you know yeah. a thousand patients a day so yeah, I can so, um, so that's been a little bit different which is great and of course also you know looking looking for a new role so um, it's um, it's very easy to you know with a couple of things to fill fill your time mm, brilliant so yeah it sounds like uh, you have been keeping very busy and obviously Christmas in between as well so in terms of your career then what, what are you excited about for you for the future of your career where, where do you see where do you see yourself long term in terms of roles and yes. responsibilities so i mean i think it's it's never better been a better time in my mind to to join you know this particularly automotive sector i mean the the amount of change you know over the last few years has been enormous absolutely enormous so you know we've we've we're sort of reaching tipping points soon where you know from from whereas um in in the idea of, of you know of um, everyone driving electric vehicles was 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 considered would be absurd you know well suddenly now you know you've had a you've had obviously the you know the diesel gate scandal and then the obviously the environmental pressures have, have been building over the last five ten years and then you've got the 
you know, the disruptive players, you know, people like Tesla have come in and ruffled up the market, which is great. You know, that disruptive market has, has dealt a blow to sort of complacent you know, vehicle manufacturers. And also there's been a, you know, a seismic shift, I think, if you look at the, the technology involved in a, in a vehicle these days. So it's from being mechanical, it's moved purely to, you know, to electronics and, and software. So the, you know, it's, um the skill sets are different i guess mm -hmm. um and you're you know you're seeing you know the uk is renowned for its you know innovative you know there's no it's no coincidence that you know companies like you know arrival are you know are, are put their footprint down in the, in the uk and we've always been really good at um at r d um in the uk so it's really exciting time really um so obviously there's some huge challenges um you know, predominantly, um, you know, the UK up until a couple of years ago, you know, we were making nearly, you know, three million engines a year, mm. you know, and a lot of those were being exported. So, you know, if as we move away, sort of less dependency on on internal combustion, then clearly, you know, we need to replace that, um, you know, that capacity with, um, you know, with with particularly with batteries, you know, and um, that's going to be a big challenge because if they don't um, if they don't establish, you know gigafactories in the UK, then the car company industry will be lost because it does, just doesn't make financial sense because the the cost of the batteries is, is a proportion of the vehicle is so high. Um, you've got to have it, you've got to have your, you've got to have your battery plant near your car plant, you know. The the, the glimmer of hope for me though is that, um, believe it or not, you know, we've got some um, massive deposits of lithium in Cornwall, you know, so, mm -hmm. so potentially there's a, it is, it is entirely feasible over the next 10 years that there could be true vertical integration. You know, we could actually, from, from source to, you know, to actual, to a complete pack, you know, could be made in the UK because otherwise you're going to be dependent on, you know, on imports again. Um, so that's going to be a challenge. Um, well, well, we've got uh, British Vault as well, haven't we, who are building the, uh, the Gigafactory up in the northeast. So that's uh, po really positive for the industry. And, you know, hopefully there'll, there'll maybe be another one pop up somewhere else as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, obviously, the last couple of weeks, we've had some great news from, from uh, Nissan, uh, you know, yeah. um, in terms of their commitment to, you know, buying more electric uh, packs for, from their sub supplier, which is fantastic. And, and then... And fingers crossed, uh, you know, British Vault are able to secure the funding they need to, to you know, to to build this 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 gigafactory, which will be you know, which will be fantastic. But um, of course, there are other sectors as well which are spinning off. So it's not just about sort of traditional automotive sectors. You know, you're seeing, you know, you know, electric scooters and you know, sort of assisted electric assisted vehicles popping up now for shopping. You know, in London, there's a lot of lot of innovation going on so I think the you know see what's happened with COVID is it's to some degree it's accelerated some things you know suddenly people quite like being able to um, to walk around the city without you know horrible traffic you know or big mm. lorries and stuff so I think it's the COVID is, um, is sort of you know it's promoted sort of that sort of clean air thing as well hasn't it I think so people are re-evaluating their um the modes of transport as well you know do you really want to spend that time on that crowded tube train anymore you know even before covid it was never a nice experience yeah. <laughs> um, you know um is there some kind of mobility solution where you know i don't arrive from the office hot and sweaty but but it's safe and it's clean and it's you know at least i'm getting a bit of exercise you know mm -hmm. so there's all there's all lots of things going on and um you know i think you're you're saying the um the whole uh, consumer uh, market's changing now um so uh, you know people are buying more and more online so again it's just been accelerated so you know there's going to be a huge amount of investment in in you know more electric delivery vehicles as well and i think it's important to think of, look at other technologies as well so you know hydrogen fuel cells you know we've got some of the largest wind farms uh mm -hmm. in the world in the uk so there's there is a an opportunity to generate you know, green hydrogen, which potentially could be used, you know, particularly for maybe for some of the heavy duty vehicles. Is, yeah, definitely. Is it purely, you know, it's definitely, um, it's definitely achievable. Yeah. Mm. Brilliant. And just, just yeah, jumping back to your career then, you know, when, when we look through your career, you've obviously been very successful 
to date, uh, works for some great companies in some senior roles. What would you put that your success down to? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm really lucky because I've always, always enjoyed what I, you know, what I do. So I think it's, and that's important. I mean, of course, everyone has good days and bad days, but on the whole, you know, if you're, if you're actually passionate about that sector, you know, it, you know going to work is, is a joy, isn't it? You know, if you're working on exciting stuff. Um, but I think a lot of it is, um, it's just a lot of networking, you know, so most of my opportunities have all originated from through word of mouth. You know, I know it's obviously, you know, you know, if, if you're a graduate, you know, a graduate engineer, it can be quite daunting. I would just, you know, I think it's important people think outside the box a little bit. Don't just go through the traditional routes of how to get your first job, you know, because you may be unsuccessful because the numbers are, are stacked against you. So, you know, think on your feet a bit. I mean, I think um, people are so receptive, even more so now. I think people are a bit more, you know, more human these days so you know offer yourself up as um you know say can i come and shadow you for a couple of days you know get trying to get your foot in the door to a company on and exploit your network so don't just rely on sort of the traditional sort of recruitment process if you know mm -hmm. try and exploit networks and um you know and um you know it, you know it can be quite daunting particularly as a and but if you can try and get some experience even if you end up not getting paid for it that can definitely help because then you've got real you know real life ex examples to show people um so i think um but i think you should stick to your stick to your principles you know and uh and stick to, you know do things that you enjoy and uh, make sure you work for people you like i think it's important <laughs> yeah very much so. And so, well, based on like the landscape of the automotive industry and, you know, as we've spoken about how it's changing and it's going to continue to change as we move mm -hmm. towards zero emission vehicles, what would you, what would you encourage young engineers to focus on to ensure that they are highly employable in the future? Yeah, I think, um, um, as I said, I think um, there's definitely a shift away from like mechanical to more mm -hmm. electronics and software. So I think it's important to be mindful of that. Um, obviously a lot of different companies are agnostic to some of the software tools they use. So, you know, it's important to be sort of adaptable that your skill set can be, can, can be used on multiple different platforms, for example, because that could, could become a barrier, you know, it could, it could become a barrier. Um, I think, um, you know, don't, don't be afraid to, 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 to you know to go overseas for opportunities there's a significant number of um, British engineers overseas working in various places so you know take every opportunity you you can really um, I think um, yeah just I think it's um, I, I say I think it's it's all about getting your first break really it's about just getting that um, getting some experience if you haven't had the opportunity for an industrial placement is how can you find another way just to give you some edge over somebody mm -hmm. else, you know. Yeah. I know it's tough, but um, you know, most people are pretty common. You know, if if someone rang me up and said, "Look, um, I'm really interested in becoming, in getting into business development. Can I come and sit with you for a couple of days?" You know, I would say yes. Mm. You know, I don't think most people would, you know, would say no. So I think it's being a little bit more proactive sometimes and just. Um, you know, or to say, can I talk to you? Said, look, I've got this idea, and uh, you know, can I just, you know, so you don't necessarily approach people directly for a job, you know, or position. I just approach them for some advice because people mm -hmm. are always flattered by that. Brilliant, and you know, you, you've given some great advice there. But if you could give one piece of advice to any young automotive professional looking to forge a career in the industry, what would it be? Goodness. Um, well, I think, um, um, I mean, make sure you, you know, you research quite, quite, you know, find out about a company, show a real interest in, in a, in a company. Um, maybe, you know, scale back some of your initial ambitions, you know, it's, it, it, your career is a stepping stone, you know, there is no, you know, there's no one route, you know, out there, you know, there's lots of forks in the road. So, but it's about building, building experience and building your network really so um i think we're very fortunate in the uk that there's lots of startup companies and small companies 
you know, don't necessarily just target the big household names, you know, um, you know, look at look at their supplier base, you know, pick a company, you know, think, right, I, oh, I really want to go and work for, you know, for Jaguar Land Rover. Well, okay, mm -hmm. but who are their suppliers? Okay, well, you know, the, the, you know, and then who are their suppliers? So you may go two levels down, you know, so I think um, uh, that's what I recommend is try not to go for the obvious, necessarily the obvious uh, um employ future employers look at look at their um look at their supply chain you'll find out that you know below every one of those will be another yeah another 10 companies or whatever and and um and you know but you have to have some kind of um i say passion or you know stick to guns i mean if you know and i think it's important that um um you know the, you go into something with a real interest in that in that company otherwise i think um it can be you know, bit of bit of a slog, really. And if you're if you're motivated, then your your output and your, you know, your whole demeanour improves dramatically, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, fantastic. Well, you know, I just want to say thank you very much for joining me today, Andrew. I've uh, really enjoyed our chat. No, thank you very much, Eddie, for inviting me. And um, you know, I all I'm uh, an avid uh, LinkedIn follower. So if any of your listeners, you know. You know, wanted any advice or suggestions? Then please, and you know, I'm happy to. Uh, I do respond to all my all my messages, so uh, by all means, reach out. And if I can help anyone um, navigate, you know, this landscape, then 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 I'd be delighted to help them. Brilliant, fantastic. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to this episode of Careers in Automotive. If you've enjoyed this episode or enjoy the series, please could I ask you to leave a review of the podcast and also like and share it with anybody that may be interested. This will just help me read the widest audience possible. Thank you very much.